Will you pray with me while, uh, before we begin? The Lord, blessed be your name, gracious, merciful, righteous, good judge and father. Lord, we come to you today to seek your guidance and your teaching as we look to a passage that is uh, difficult in some aspects and yet uh, helpful and enlightening. May your light shine on us as we read and study this, your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible or want to use one of the Bibles there in the seat baskets, we are in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Genesis chapter 18 and 19, and our teaching series is looking at the, the book of Genesis, chapters 12 through 50, which is the story of the patriarchs, is oftentimes the way it's referred to. It's more than just patriarchs, it's matriarchs, it's people from foreign lands, kings, various other characters and figures that are family members of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've been taking this approach of looking at the story, a retelling of the story, and then looking at how the New Testament writers use and lean on these Old Testament stories to teach us who Jesus is and to teach us and explain more fully how God brings salvation to humanity through one family, in particular, one offspring. Genesis chapter 18 tells the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. 19, more specifically, about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. 18 is not detached from 19, even though in many Bibles the, the chapter headings have a hard time discerning where one story ends and where another one begins. They're, they're interwoven. And I think if I tell this story correctly, you'll see how these stories connect. Abraham was by some of the trees there where he and his family and household extended people had gathered together and set up their camp. Oak trees were prevalent, provided shade. It was in the middle of the day, the heat of the day in the Middle East. It was hot. The people were not working. Abraham was not working. His wife was in the tent. God appeared to Abraham right there in the middle of the day with two angels and there they were standing, and Abraham recognizes God. And setting aside any sense of decorum or formality, Abraham runs, runs up to meet God and these two angels. And he bows before the angels. And he greets God and he says, and I quote, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. 
Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. Three men were obviously on their way to somewhere, not clear yet to Abraham where they were going, but Abraham provides the hospitality and they accept. And Abraham goes into the tent to find Sarah and he calls on her. He says, five gallons of flour, make cakes that will last a while. He went out to one of his helpers in the field, and with him they go and find the perfect calf, the best calf of the flock, young, ready to be eaten, and the young man prepares the calf. Abraham went and gathered curds and milk, went back to the butcher and found the calf and brought the bread, and he stood with his three theophanistic guests. And while they ate, he stood by. It sounds like a strange custom, but for an honored guest, it was usual in this time and place that he would stand while they would eat. After they were done, the Lord asked, where is Sarah, your wife? Abraham said, she's in the tent. Indeed, she was in the tent. She was listening on as they continued in their conversation just outside the tent in the shade of the trees. And the Lord said to Abraham, this time next year, Sarah will give birth to a son. Sarah chuckled perhaps in earshot of these three visitors. She asked the question to herself after I'm worn out. Abraham and I are old. Shall I have this pleasure? Somehow maybe Abraham goes in and talks with Sarah, but God asks Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah now has joined the crowd and Sarah says, I didn't laugh, embarrassed, not sure what to believe, both happy and overwhelmed at the same time. And God said, you did laugh. From that laughter comes the name Isaac, which means laughter. The story doesn't go on a year ahead now, but continues on with this discussion of the three men and Abraham and now two of the men go on and the Lord says to himself should I keep my destination secret from Abraham the man that I have chosen to be the father of nations and to be an intercessor for humanity a rescuer for humanity the rhetorical question is answered in the positive and God calls Abraham aside and he explains what their purpose is. They're on the way to Sodom, the town where Abraham's nephew Lot had made his home and established his household. 
and become an influential person in the town. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to Sodom to find out if the voices I've heard crying out for justice are right and accurate. And it seems like God would know that. He's omnipotent and omnipresent. And still, yet another rhetorical question helps us in this story in understanding how God operates. That he sometimes appears as a human being even though he has no body. That he sometimes communicates in our language and using our own devices so that we can understand that his justice is not arbitrary or distant, but connected and present. And God explains to Abraham that there's a problem in Sodom, and that is that injustice is being done over and over again in this city. And Abraham steps into the role that he's still growing into as the chosen father of nations and bringer of God's salvation and blessing to the nations. And nearly a hundred years old, still is figuring out how to do that right. But he has a boldness about him. And he recognizes that God is a just God and he questions God about that justice. He says, look, God, if, if there were 50 people left within this city who are righteous, will you destroy the whole city? And God says, no, indeed. If there are 50 righteous in the city, I will not destroy the city. And Abraham says, well, what, what about if there are just five short of that 50? Will you destroy the city if 45 righteous are found there? And God says, no, I won't destroy the city if there are 45 righteous there. And Abraham says, well, what if there are 40? God says, no. No, I won't destroy the city if there are 40 righteous there. Abraham at this point recognizes he's pushing his luck and perhaps God's patience says, forgive me, but let me ask, what if there are 30? God says, no, I won't do it if 30. Still recognizing the patience and understanding the significance of this haggle in the story it's told in detail and we tell it in detail 20 20 if there are 20 righteous people there will you destroy it and God says no suppose 10 10 are found there for the sake of 10 God says I will not destroy it and God went on his way and the two angels who had already left were on their way to Sodom. God didn't accompany them. The two angels enter the city and immediately find Abraham's nephew Lot, who is in the gate of the city, and the gates of the city were a place of meeting, kind of like the city council hall today. 
Oftentimes they were elaborate with multiple gates and so they formed a chamber, kind of a room, where the people would get together and they were significant. It was where the people came in and out of the city and so if you were at the city gates, you knew the going-ons of the city. The angels find Lot there in the city gates because Lot was prominent in the city. Already had made a name for himself. He was wealthy and had gained some influence, but not entire influence because the angels tell Lot, we're going to camp here in the middle of the city square tonight. Lot begs with them, come stay in my house. The city is not a safe place. Why would Lot, a leader in the city, say this if he didn't know exactly what the city was like? Now what happens next is curious because Lot takes them to his home and, and there Lot makes a meal by himself for these angels. By himself for these angels. It's a stark contrast by the, from the collective effort that went into the meal at the Oaks of Mamre. Abraham and Sarah and servant in his household. It was a fast meal and Abraham didn't even add yeast to the bread because things had to be done quickly. Excuse me, Lot didn't add yeast to the bread. After dinner they were getting ready for bed. It was dark. There was a knock on the door. Lot went out to greet what was now a mob of men, old and young, and everyone in the city was included. And I'm not exaggerating. Everyone in the city. All the men anyway. The men insisted, let those angels come out. Bring those angels out, those men that you have in your house, because we we want to have sexual relationship with them. All of us. <clears throat> Lot begged the men. Go away. And then he did something surprising. He said, if you won't go away, I have two daughters. Take them instead of these two men. The men insisted. They said, stand back. You're just a sojourner in this city, and yet you pretend to be our judge? Who are you? Now we will attack you worse than we would have with them. And the mob pressed in against Lot, and the two angels reached out and grabbed Lot and pulled him in, and they shut the door. And the angel struck the mob with blindness so that they couldn't attack the entrance of the door in the house. And they went away. The angels then turned to Lot and said, Is anyone else here? 
amazing. Anyone else here? No one else had come to greet the angels yet. Do you have sons-in-laws or daughters or anyone else in the city? Bring them out because we need to get out of the city. We are about to destroy the city. The outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went and talked to the two men who were supposed to marry his two daughters. They weren't married yet. And the two men heard Lot's story and they laughed. It's like some kind of fairy tale. They laughed. And Lot went to his daughters and his wife and they lingered around. And Lot surprisingly lingered with them and so again the angels grabbed them by the collar and pulled them out of the city and gave them the instruction don't look back and don't stop don't look back and don't stop keep going flee to the hills and Lot says let me go to Zoar I like city life I don't want to be in the wilderness. And they gave him permission to go to Zoar, which was a small town in comparison to Sodom. Lot, his wife, and his daughters are on the way, and God brings destruction on Sodom. Sulfur in fire. Sometimes it's referred to as fire and brimstone. And Abraham came out and looked over the valley and could see the smoke the next morning. And Lot and his wife and daughters continued on and Lot's wife looked back and was destroyed with them became a pillar of salt. The story goes on with another little detail that we won't address too much today. Lot's daughters eventually with Lot find themselves in the hills. We don't know why Zoar wasn't a hospitable place for them, we could guess. And now it's just the three of them and Lot's daughters want to have children. And so they each in turn make their father drunk and sleep with him. And each has a son and one is named Moab and the other is called Ben-Ami. And they become the fathers of two towns, two areas that replace Sodom and Gomorrah and some of the towns to the east of what will be Israel and are at odds with the people of Israel throughout its history. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah poses a number of challenges. Questions about the ethics of God, about sexuality, about the practices of family, 
You would think that the story might just fade off into history as sort of an interesting anecdote. But no, it recurs throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament. As an example of God's judgment brought on a whole people. Many have used this story or examples of it to declare judgment on other peoples, other nations. Saying that certain acts of God are judgments like Sodom and Gomorrah. What do we make of these accusations, these judgments? To understand this story is to understand something of the character of God. We have to press in on some of these questions and realize that while some answers are outside of the explanation of Scripture, many answers are right there plainly explained in other scriptures connected with this one. The question of whether God is a genocidal God is answered back from chapter 15 and verse 16 when God told Abraham that he wasn't ready to give him the land that they were in because the iniquity of the Amorites, the current residents, was not yet complete. The iniquity of Sodom obviously was complete. The iniquity of the people in Noah's time when God brought that flood was obviously complete. Ironically enough, the only other significant judgment of a city that's brought in wholesale, you might think, well, Nineveh, God was going to bring judgment there, but Noah's grace His grace endures. The only other specific judgment of an entire city happens with Jerusalem itself. When the people of Israel were committing many of the same crimes that the people of Sodom were guilty of. When Babylon comes and sacks and tears down the entire city. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. To focus on the sin of homosexuality in the city at the expense of missing the broader sins that were going on is to miss some of the point, but it doesn't mean that God has said that homosexuality is the right practice of sexual design. In fact, there are many other places in Scripture, Romans 1, the book of Leviticus, that are very clear in Old Testament and New Testament that that design is not how God made humanity even if some people have those desires. God desires sex to happen between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. The prophet Jeremiah, excuse me, the prophet Ezekiel clarifies some of what the sins of Sodom were in chapter 16 saying, As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters. Now, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking to Jerusalem. Have not done, your sister excuse me, it declares that your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was their guilt in Sodom, 
pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease. But they did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. That part of the story isn't clear from the story in Genesis. But as we hear it explained in other parts of Scripture, God himself revealing to us, we understand that what was going on in Lot's city was far greater than this this scene of rape, even gang rape. Where it was haughtiness. It was selfishness. It was greed. It was injustice. And yet it's not surprising that many other sexual sins would accompany these very sins that are so prevalent in our culture today and were prevalent in Jesus' time and place and have been prevalent in so many cultures throughout history. See, sex is so often just an expression of much greater problems in a society, in a marriage, in various relationships. Rarely is the issue primarily about sex. But in sex, the symptoms of all kinds of other problems are exposed and revealed often hidden, not dealt with. But this voice of people crying out came up to God in relation to Sodom to explain something of how God brings His justice. He hears the cries of the poor. He promises His judgment is good and righteous. If you look at the characters of this story, they're very interesting and they, they reveal a lot about uh, the, the story as we see them explained in other parts of the scriptures. Let's look at them just a little bit. You might even list them on your note page there. The first one is Abraham himself. Abraham receives these three visitors with a hospitality that was characteristic of the Middle East people and still is of many of those nomadic tent-dwelling Bedouins of the region. That the guests receive this honor in this place and they are treated with the utmost respect, not just because it was God and two of his angels, but many visitors who would be passing through would find that type of hospitality. Abraham involves the other people around him, his wife, his servants, to bring and show this hospitality. Sarah sees what's going on and is curious and almost childlike listening in to the conversation with her ear against the side of the tent. Is conflicted. She longs to have a child that she could never have in her 90 years of life, and yet she is worn out in her time of childbearing by any kind of human standards is gone. As we hear about these various people, try to put yourself in their position and see if you recognize some of your own response to God's 
proclamations, his announcements, his promises to give you blessing, to bring you peace, Mm -hmm. to be present with you. Do you laugh when you hear promises that sound too good to be true? Do you believe God? And as we read a couple of weeks ago, last week rather, it be counted to you as righteousness. Do you see God at work? Or are you like Lot, perhaps caught up in the trappings of the city and the economic opportunity of the city, recognizing the dangers of the city and the difficulty, but still staying there, residing there? Was Lot trying to transform the city? We don't know. But Lot obviously was in a place that had transformed his own family with his wife, looking back on the city, revealing her love for the city more than her love for God. His daughters seeing no opportunity, his sons-in-laws not listening to his words at all when they when he explains that that destruction is going to come on the city. Do you find yourself in a place of utter disbelief? You read these words and you say, it's not God's words. It can't be God's words. One of the surest signs that the God that you believe in is a God who never disagrees with you. Are there places where your God disagrees with what you believe? If you can't honestly say no, or excuse me, if you can't honestly say yes, the God that you worship is a God that you have created rather than the God who has created you. This whole scene is such a contrast of two places, the tent city that Abraham and Sarah dwell in and this fortified city where Lot and his family dwell. The whole scene is a contrast between light and dark, brightness and darkness. The scene with Abraham takes place, verse one of chapter 18, in the very light of the day, the heat of the day, the scene with Lot is after dinner and at bedtime. The contrast of these two places and the hospitality shown to the same two angels couldn't be more vivid. Wherever you find yourself being able to identify with a certain person in the story, I want you to take a step back and ask the question, where do we as a people in this church and in this city find ourselves when God draws near to us and enters into our presence? Because our call, our call is not simply to be in the right position as individuals before God, but our call is to be intercessors and mediators before God for the people that we live with. You see how Abraham and Sarah responded and those people responded versus Lot 
and his community. You see, cities are important in God's economy. God gave them a city to live in. Psalm 107 brings this out. The city of Jerusalem is a perfect illustration. Cities are formed from the very beginning in the time of Genesis when it seems like there aren't even enough people to make cities. God says they settled in cities because cities are places where life is real, where interaction with others exposes our own selfish hearts. And where God's people and his priests, his intercessors, represent the people and bring people near to God. Even in the wilderness, wilderness wandering of the Israelites, when God rescues them from Egypt, he keeps them together collectively in a tent city. Because in that community, God builds up his presence and reveals his power. God has cared for cities throughout the history of his creation and uses cities as places of refuge, as places of provision, and also brings his collective judgment on whole peoples, but not in a way that is unfair or unjust but rather in a way that is always patient. Always willing to endure the conversation that Abraham had with people 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. Always seeing the opportunity for hope of one person coming into a city and bringing light into the dark place. Maybe Lot was trying to do just that. Apostle Peter, chapter 2 of his second letter, refers to Lot as righteous. It's a questionable judgment, isn't it? You see that he offered his daughters there. And it begs the question, on what ground might Lot have been considered righteous? Certainly compared to his wife who looked back, we would say he was righteous. Jesus points that out, speaking in Luke 17. Remember Lot's wife. The righteousness of Lot, I believe, has to be understood in context of what Abraham had done in his relationship with Lot. Remember how that rescuing of Lot was still fresh on everybody's mind and how God appeared to Abraham and Abraham, what? He believed God and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was not innocent of these heinous crimes against women that you could even say that they were misogynistic. Abraham lied about his wife, that he was, she was his sister, and Pharaoh took Sarai, Sarai at the time, to be his own wife, perhaps even sleeping with her. Abraham wasn't righteous because of what he did any more than Lot was righteous because of what he did. In the scriptures, it's clear that righteousness comes only from God. Accounted counted righteous 
because we believe God and follow him. Lot believed the angels and followed them. Even though he dallied a little bit and and delayed, he still believed them and went with them. When literally no one else around believed God and his angels as messengers. Out of the darkness, Lot came. Lot's righteousness is based on the same thing that our righteousness is based on, and that is a belief in God. Galatians 3, Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. Our belief is what is counted to us as righteousness. I think we've addressed most of the issues of the story, but I want to turn back and just look at, consider the place of the city in this story and the call to us to live in this city as a representative of God, an ambassador of his righteousness that he gives to us and our call to be messengers like these angels were. Over half the world's population now lives in cities. First time in history, the number continues to grow. Cities are places of increasing cultural influence, not just in the United States, but around the world. As the city goes, so goes the rest of the country in our time of modern media and even more so in the time of social media. We look sometimes to the countryside and say, I wish I lived there, but we see overall that cities influence how we think and how we believe. The call of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not a call first against homosexuality or other sexual sins. The call of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a call to bring the salvation of God into a city, sometimes with as few as 10 people in a place. But from those 10 people can come amazing transformation. In the stories of the New Testament, the story of the city of Philippi was a major, fairly major city in the New Testament era. And when Paul comes into that city, he finds just a handful of women, perhaps 10, perhaps fewer, a handful of women who are meeting by the river to pray to God. No men are mentioned. And from that handful of people emerges what becomes one of the best, most faithful New Testament churches. A prominent church that is characterized by an understanding of what God has called them to do and be in that city. Knows what generosity is and knows what it is to defend the rights of the poor, the needs of the poor, to represent God on behalf. For when we enter into a culture and do those things and lead in areas of generosity and kindness, of justice, of seeking justice, the ethical values surrounded in, around sex and sexual practices oftentimes follow. Not always, but oftentimes follow. 
I'm not making any connections with this story and the events of the last two weeks and certain and the the the, the, the nomination and approval of the of, of Justice uh, Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. That whole discussion is entirely uh, separate from from this one. Although there are some related related things, I'm not commenting on that. Rather, I'm leading us as a church to enter into this city in new and powerful ways to be mediators and priests on behalf of God to this city, bringing the message of salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. The message that belief in Jesus Christ is the hope of salvation for this great city of San Diego and every other city in the world. That through that Nations and people will be met that fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that many nations would see and believe that the offspring, Jesus Christ, would be the hope of all of these nations and that the good news of his salvation would extend to the ends of the earth. For in the New Testament era, salvation and the message of the gospel through the apostles, and especially through the apostle Paul, goes into those cities and transforms hearts and minds as people see who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The role of the city could not be any less important today. In fact, it increasingly becomes more and more important, but it doesn't have to be defined, or it's not simply defined by the place where the skyscrapers are. The city spreads and sprawls all over the place. And wherever we find ourselves living in this city, God calls us to be his ambassadors to those around us. To understand the needs of people around us, whether they're wealthy or not wealthy. To understand the hurting and the pain and to see the salvation that Jesus brings in the nearness and the presence of God in a way that brings ultimate healing to a people. To stand with people when God draws near and help them to understand who God is. That in that place we would be more like Abraham and less like Lot. To recognize the angels when they come. To recognize God himself when he draws near and is changing hearts. For by the power of his Holy Spirit, he continues to enter into hearts and minds and to be willing and able to sit down with someone and explain the gospel. To not be so consumed with our lives and our schedules that we don't have time, even in our harriedness, hurriedness, to sit down and to show people Jesus. Over and over again, the New Testament writers bring up the city of Sodom. Jesus himself does it on multiple times. And here's what almost always it has to do with. God's kingdom coming in judgment. God's kingdom drawing near and coming in judgment. And I know you thought I forgot all about the scripture for today, but actually I didn't. I was leading us to this because this is the passage this is the passage from today that points us to that. If you want to look on your insert or turn to Luke chapter 10, this is it. 
Verse 12 was the only one that I referenced as the sermon text, even though I gave you some more context in the sermon passage. Jesus says, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. He's referring to towns that he had gone to and entered into the places and healed sick and done miracles. He said earlier, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, and ultimately Jerusalem itself. And what happens when the kingdom of God draws near to these people who have been entrusted with the word of God, it finds their hearts hard. And Jesus gives this stark warning. And this is as close as I come to fire and brimstone preaching. When God's kingdom comes, it exposes in judgment the wrongs done in a place, individuals and corporately. And that should make us uneasy in our seat because we should realize that even though we haven't committed the sins that we associate with Sodom, we all know that we, if God stepped into this room right now, would squirm in our seat a bit. knowing of guilt in some area in our life, multiple areas in our life, those places that we don't want anybody to know about, that we want to hide away. And we need to hear this warning. It is out of compassion that Jesus says this to the cities and says it to us. We need to hear this warning that God comes and he brings justice and we are on the wrong side of that justice. And the only way we can get on the right side of that justice is through Jesus who is our righteousness. Don't you see, we, we, we all have games on how we consider, convince ourselves that we're righteous. Most of the time, the games are games of comparison. I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that woman. I'm not as bad as Sodom was. I'm not as bad as Lot's wife was. I'm not as bad as the person sitting next to me. I'm not as bad as the person outside the building. But where does that game end? It never ends. Because there's always somebody worse than you and somebody better than you. Where do you draw the line and say, good enough? There's no place to draw that line except on the end of humanity where only Jesus is on the side of the righteous. Otherwise, it's arbitrary. Who gets to decide? Lot, why are you judging us? You're a sojourner, you're a foreigner. Why are you judging us? God, why are you judging us? Why are you judging us, God? And, and we can't say that. Unless we want to identify ourselves with Sodom. Rather, God calls us to say, God, you are good enough to judge. And what mercy you've poured out to us by Jesus saying, I'm going to give my righteousness to you. And in that very city 
that was meant to be the holy place where God, injustice was done and God himself was destroyed. But not without power to conquer sin and death in the process. The good news of the gospel is that justice has been done and served. That God didn't just write off the sins, but that he paid the price in full for the sins. And Jesus died this death that we deserved and gave us his life that we could never deserve. That good news transforms individuals and individuals who are transformed transform cities. Let's pray. Oh Lord, your word is sharp like a two-edged sword. May we not add to it or subtract from it. May we be pierced to our heart and may your sword cut off the hardness of our heart that we would see and identify ourselves as people in need of your justice and your mercy. May we find both in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, the promised king like David, and our great high priest who constantly intercedes on our behalf. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.